21, and then in a moment we'll look at Psalm 8. But Matthew 21, verse 14, down to verse 16, says this. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Jesus quotes from this psalm, so I would like this morning for us to explore the psalm. Because you know that when Jesus says something, it's with purpose. And so some of those scribes, certainly, maybe someone hearing, would know where this came from, Psalm 8. It would know the greater context. And what you see here is not just a rebuke from Jesus, but grace. Grace there in this psalm that he quotes from. Hear God's word, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us pray. Father, how majestic, how excellent is your name in all the earth. We long to give you praise and we long to see all men and women give you praise. Lord, change our hearts this, e this morning as we consider the words of our Lord Jesus, as simple as they are, the simple quote from this psalm. And I pray, O oh Lord, that we would go forth with a new vigor for who you are and who we are in the cosmos that you have created. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, everything about Palm Sunday sickened the Pharisees and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. It sickened them to see this man who had not gone through their schools, not earned their degrees, did not have their accreditation, come in, not on a war ho horse with triumph, but on a donkey, a full of a donkey, a donkey that wasn't even, it hadn't even been ridden yet, it was not even broken. And to see him come in like this made them indignant, taking all the praise of the people as they watched him come forth in this what we would call triumphal entry. As King Jesus rode, it sickened them to see this. And then he comes to the temple of all places and draws with him people who needed healing. Now don't underestimate what this is. They were not allowed in the temple, right in the inner, inner area where they were, where Jesus was healing them. So this further angered them. But what's the one thing that they pick out? Do you notice? What really angers them? Little children praising and worshiping Christ. That's what really gets under their skin when they see that. And for a moment, just to give a little bit of understanding to the Pharisees and their perspective, they were misdirected. Their idea was a kingdom on earth. Religion to them had become a man-centered thing. It really revolved around them. They enjoyed their status in Rome. They enjoyed their status among the Hebrew people. They were knowledgeable. They were educated. They were able to lord that over people. They had a lot of power, social status, all the things that goes in to being a leader. They enjoyed that. They became less and less God-focused and more and more about their authority and legalism and all that is steeped upon the people. So their misdirection is fueling how they see Jesus 
especially these little children who are giving praise to him. Now think for a moment about what, what, what comes to your mind and heart when you see children doing something wicked, something that's wrong. You think the first thought is, what are their parents instilling in them? In fact, not too long ago, you probably saw on the news where the 14-year-old boy, the Palestinian boy who was strapped with these explosives, did you see that? 14 years old, and he was somehow taught that this would be okay, no matter what his differences were, that it would be okay to blow himself up and others up. 14. I mean, my thought was on that boy, but it was also on what goes into teaching people this. And it saddens you. How about recently? You probably saw in the news this week the tragic pictures of this, these civilians who were killed and these people cheering with their bodies hanging, hanging, from a, hanging from a bridge. Well, I was watching that video the time I saw it, and once is all I could handle. But I saw children, and they weren't small children, but they were school-age children among those who were cheering. Well, this, this atrocity had just happened. It just saddens you. It's, it's just wrong. And that's the state of humanity. But we see children do this, and we react. Well, to these misdirected people, the Pharisees, when they see the children respond to Jesus like this, that's how they viewed it. They saw it as a travesty. Now, granted, it was selfish. It was imposing upon their power. But they could not understand, what are parents teaching these children? Jesus, do you see what they're doing? You've got to stop this, is what they're essentially saying to the Lord Jesus. Do you see what they're doing? You're not going to let this go on, are you? But how he responds is just a wonderful rebuke, but at the same time, it is grace. When you look at Psalm 8 in its entirety, Jesus says to them, Have you never read? Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. He quotes from Psalm 8. How did he respond with rebuke? Yes, but with grace, great grace. All who would have listened and would have turned to their Bibles in Psalm 8. It was a well-known psalm, one that was sung often and repeated often in worship services, even in those days. They would have known the context of this great psalm that accents God's glory in your place, my place, the, no less than the meaning of life in this psalm. It would have recalibrated any who heard Jesus' words if they misunderstood what was happening with why these children were praising, why Jesus came in on the foal of a donkey, why things were happening the way they were. If they had wondered that and if they had looked at Psalm 8, they would have seen this element of Jesus fulfilling even this psalm and speaking in terms of those children doing what God ordained them to do. We see here in confronting his opposition at the beginning of his so-called passion ministry, the Lord Jesus refers to a psalm that gives us no less than the meaning of life. So if you've come here this morning wondering what the meaning of life is, you're going to find out because it's in Psalm 8. It's not from Tony. It's from Psalm 8, and we'll see it here as Jesus gives it. And we get to see it through the lenses of our Lord Jesus. Those first readers of the psalm, the writer David, when he penned it, certainly couldn't have known all that would come to pass as we are able to now see with access to the throne, access to a new vision because of Jesus. We can now understand it in the way they would have us to understand it. And as we read this, brothers and sisters, let us continually study, celebrate, and rest in our Father's glory and the grace that we have through the access that Jesus has purchased. Let's look at the passage together, or the, the text together, Psalm 8. First, we learn of our, of our Father's great, great glory. So Jesus uses this quote out of Psalm 8, but if you would look at the whole psalm, you'd see it's about his Father's glory. That is who God is. He himself is the glorious one. How is he glorious? He's the sovereign creator of all things. Look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. First, we have O Lord, our Lord. So, Lord, you are the sovereign or the governor over all. You're the king. But you're not just that. You're, you are our Lord. O Lord, 
our Lord. It's personal. You have set your glory above the heavens. So in creation, which he's about to expound upon, you set your glory above it all. So when we see the creation, and it's glorious, we'll consider it in a moment, but just think about glorious the creation is, even through my sinful eyes, I can see the glory of God in the creation. The heavens declare his glory. And even with that glory, he is set above it. God is above that glory. So as, as awestruck as you are looking into the heavens or something on earth, realize that God's glory is above the heavens. He's placed himself above it by virtue of him being created because he can. He made it. It's his workmanship. But look at verse 2. Just what a juxtaposition, just opposing this huge thought of the Lord creating all things and setting his glory above it. And then verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and infants. And literally infants means suckling. That is, a child is still on his mother's breast, still nursing. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy, the avenger. So right away addresses the fact that there will be opposition. But all God needs to do to suppress the opposition is not raise up schooled men or women, not uh, have all sort of credentials and uh, trained rhetoricians. No, out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, those who haven't even learned, and can you imagine this, haven't even learned to say no yet. I don't remember that. They don't even know how to say no yet, but God ordains praise from their mouth. Don't ever believe that a child cannot have saving faith because it's God who is the Lord of faith. And he places that in the mouths of these babies who are still yet nursing in order to do what? Show how weak his opposition really is. If he can raise up babies to speak forth his praise, he heart, he, what else would he need? He shows the weakest element you and I can think of, a little baby, and can silence the enemies who would say he's not the creator. He doesn't deserve glory. And all glory is his. Through the creation and the simplicity of bringing praise forth from even a baby's mouth. Now, I can't confirm to you that this audibly comes from their mouths, but I have witnessed small babies, especially because I've had several of them in my house, when we do our own family worship, when we sing, to see the littlest one just blurt out these audible tones because he wants to sing with his brothers. And yeah, it's cute. It is. But maybe there's something more there than what I'm just seeing. Does he ordain strength? Does he ordain from their mouths, even from that young age, inaudible to us, but to God, it's praise, and it's maybe pure praise than I could ever offer because of the simplicity of that little baby's faith. Whatever, however you define that faith, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength, David writes, and Jesus then, of course, quotes the, the, what, what is coming forth. You've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Look at verse 3. The psalmist now turns back to heaven. This great big God he only needs babies to suppress his, his, uh, his enemies. Then verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Now, just pause there for a moment. When I look at the heavens and the moons and the star, the moon and the stars, think of, of how far we've come in exploration. And it's far. We sent a rover to Mars just to find out you know, that there might have been water on there. That's great. You know what? That's wonderful. I'm glad we're doing it. We have microwave ovens and probably computers because we went to the moon and so forth. That's wonderful. But you know what it's like in comparison to the rest of the universe, how far we've gotten in the exploration? It would be like me saying to you, let's go explore all the bodies of water on the earth. You know how big and vast they are. And we'll spend the next hundred years in that pond out there. That's about how far we are, and I'm probably not that far even. The vastness of the heavens, when you're talking about I see the heavens you've created. And the psalmist only saw pinpricks in the sky. We now have the Hubble telescope. We could see a lot more than the psalmist saw. And we know the full totality of what he's saying. When the heavens, the heavens, when I look at the heavens, 
the work of your fingers, his providential care in creating all these things, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Think for a moment of what this means. The Hubble telescope, which is becoming obsolete, people tell me, I can't imagine that, is able to identify, they tell me, I say they, those scientists who do this research, that they have noted a, the creation of a star 170,000 light years away. Now, I'm just addressing one aspect of when I look at the heavens, or the Hubble telescope does anyways. That means if you traveled 186,000 miles per second, that's the speed of light, or 6 million miles per hour, wow, it would take you 170,000 years just to get there. If you traveled at that speed just to get there, 170,000 years. That is 102 quintillion miles away. It's estimated within that system that there are 10 billion galaxies. I have no idea where they come up with those numbers, but even if there are a portion of that, imagine the amount of galaxies they say are there, each galaxy containing millions and millions of stars. I remember Carl saying millions and millions or billions and billions, and he would say the cosmos, all that there is and all that there ever was, and of course he was totally spiritually blind, wasn't he? But when we look at the heavens, we see the works of his hands, his fingers, the moon and the stars. And for a guy like Sagan, it must have been overwhelming to see the vastness of it. And you can understand how small he felt. And I would feel the same way too if verse 4 doesn't say what it says. But we'll get there in a moment. I'm still in the middle of being numbed by the vastness of God's created universe. I can't handle it. When you get to the end of the heavens, the heavens keep coming at you. They don't stop. And some of the moon or the, the stars that are supposedly coming out of this new system are ten times the size of our star that keeps us alive, earthly speaking. So I can't look at that for too long. I'm overwhelmed. But just look at the earth. Scoop up some soil sometime. Put it under a microscope. You'll find a thousand little organisms. Fungi, algae, protozoa, all sorts of other terms I didn't pay really close attention to when I was in biology and botany. But now I'm amazed by when I consider that a handful will hold all those things. I am intrigued by some of these maybe useless bits of information, but there's an Arctic tern, which is a bird, that flies a 10,000-mile round trip from Antarctica in the summer to Asia in the winter. 10,000 miles round trip, a bird that God has created. A northern fulmar spends its entire life out on the ocean. It, it can conceivably never land anywhere. And this is the amazing thing the works of his fingers now, that it has a desalination factory in the structural makeup of its beak. It can drink seawater and turn it into fresh water. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, it's all so big and I would feel so small. And when I was a little child, my biggest fear was not getting lost on earth because I thought that God could take care of us if we're anywhere on earth. But if we got launched into space and just got disconnected from the ship somehow and would just be floating, that was like my biggest fear that this would have, that God would not be there. He's not only there, he's all there. And he, by the works of his hands, his fingers, has put it all together. And there's no way to be outside of God's universe because it's his. It dwarfs us. Our Father's glory is revealed by who he is, the sovereign creator. But in the midst of all this, look at verse 4. It's a good question. What is man that you are mindful of him? In the, in the light of the bigness, the vastness of what I've just spoken of, the psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. And do you see that we are incredibly small, brothers and sisters. We are very, very small. 
Yet God is mindful of me, you. He remembers me continually. In all this vastness, in all these galaxies, he remembers Tony personally. And he not only is mindful, he cares. Action and concern for me. Why? For his glory. Verse 5, look what he does with me, what he does with you. Yet you have been made a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Amidst all of this, he's crowned us, you and I, to be created in his image with glory and honor. Father's glory is revealed by who he is. He's a sovereign creator. But Psalm 8, the psalm that Jesus quotes to his, his, those who are opposing him at this time, also tells us of our Father's grace as well. And this is what's so beautiful about this rebuke of Jesus. If the, if the scribes would have just looked further, they would have seen that this is a psalm of grace, our Father's grace, what he has done. With all that he has created, he's crowned us as the caretakers, but he is the ultimate loving caretaker. Look at verse 4, though, again. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? So this providential care he has for us where he really thinks of you. And I want you to understand this before you leave today, that God really does personally think of you. It's not just something I say to, to hook you in or somehow make you feel special today. It's true. He mind, he's mindful of you. And no matter whatever your self-image is today, God's image of you is worth spending time on. And he does care about you no matter how alone you feel. That is tremendously strengthening to me because you have times in your life where you're alone. There may be people all around you, but you're alone. At least you feel that way. But he's saying that he's mindful of you. And not only does he have you in mind, he cares for you. That means he has to be involved with every detail of your life. That is grace. He doesn't just create and let it go like the clockmaker who makes the clock and lets it go on its own. He intimately, providentially cares for you in every detail of your life. It all matters to him. Look at verse 6. You, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. We're talking about man. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the, he birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. You see, the way that God has chosen to take care of his creation is by making men and women caretakers or stewards of the earth. And the beauty of it is we reap the bounty of earth it's our responsibility to take care of it and restore it, but we reap the bounty of it. It's not that we just watch it and can never have it. We take it in, and that's part of the glory that goes to God is we use that bounty and then take proper care of it and see it restored. And the restoration power that it has inherently by God's design is even more remarkable. That if we are good stewards, it will replenish itself by its very makeup. Man is so wonderfully made. Despite the vastness of creation, he can, in his original state, keep track and take care of it. Man is king. His territory is the world. You know, if you have opportunity to look at the arts for a moment, you will see and recognize the greatness of man. I don't mean humanism. I just mean the imprint of God on man that is unlike any other created being. I had time to spend in Rome, and I got to watch the, see many of the works of Michelangelo. Now, whatever you think of him personally, he gave a certain level of homage or devotion to God, and is what he said. But the very talent and giftedness that the Sistine Chapel alone, when you see the artwork, it literally today, 500 years later, and I know they did a restorative process and so forth, but when you look at this, it still sticks out at you like it's 3D. And he did this thing on the ceiling. And they're huge figures that go through the whole story of the Bible. 
and then to the Last Judgment scene, which is unlike any piece of art you've ever seen. And go down the list of artwork that you see. It's amazing that man has this ability, and it's not in and of himself that he has this ability. It's just a small glimpse of the imprint of the image of God that's still there, even though we're glorious ruins today, and that's what we are. We're in glory, we are glorious ruins. Because what the psalmist is speaking of, as you probably have noted, is all true about our dominion over the earth. But maybe you, like me, have a bittersweet taste in my mouth when I consider how we lost all of it in the garden. Father's grace is shown forth by what he's done in creating us and the world and taking care of it by putting us in charge of it. But there's a dilemma. You can't go far in Psalm 8 without noting the dilemma. Sin. We're unfit to manage God's creation the way the psalmist describes. I mean, how would you say that we have done as caretakers? How, how do you think we've done? Men, fellow, our fellow men and women. No question that we hoard resources. There's no reason why any person on earth should go hungry. We pollute. We mistreat wildlife. We plunder forests. We pillage the sea. I'm not talking about environmental worship. You understand what I'm saying. Christian stewardship. How well have we done at it? Very poorly, and it's because of sin. We are glorious ruins now. We do our best, but we'll continually struggle. Look at Genesis 3 with me for a moment, just to understand the backdrop with which we live and move. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 19, after Adam has taken of the fruit, the forbidden tree, understand, as glorious as man is, that there is now an incapacity. There is a, a limitation that we have. And Adam, to Adam he said in verse 17 of Genesis 3, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. The ground is now cursed because of the fall of man. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you will return i can't even put into words what this tragedy means to have all of creation given to our hands to be able to stroke the mane of a lion without it biting us devouring us mauling us to now, as a result of the fall, be separated from God and now even from his creation, at least to a point. In Genesis 9, you don't need to turn there, but when Noah and his sons uh, land on the, the dry ground, God blessed Noah and said to his sons, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea. A tragedy compared to the original creation, but it was even grace because those animals would have devoured the unfaithful stewards that we are. We wouldn't be able to manage them like we could before the fall, and so he puts a fear in them so that they won't. It's God's grace, but it's also a reflection of the fall that we now have to have this barrier, in a sense, between us and the creation. In fact, one of my son's favorite questions is, can this or that animal, can, can they, do they, will they kill us, Daddy? Well, will they come get it? And, you know, the answer I can give to him, and he names everything from a bobcat to a giraffe. I mean, just along the spectrum. Usually, no, son. They're scared of us. They don't want to have anything to do with us. And in his own four-and-a-half-year-old, five-year-old way now, he looks and says, eh, they're scared of us? And it bo bothers him. Because in his simple way of thinking, wouldn't it be just great to be able to have them as a pet or be not? But that's the tragedy of the fall. It's our dilemma. 
we're incapacitated, we don't take care of the resources like we ought to. Physically, we're affected, we die, so we can't have this long-standing care of the earth. We die too soon. Mentally, we are slowed now. None of us could do th- have the capacity that Adam has. The smartest among us has only a fraction of the intellect that Adam had, and just the ability to name all the animals in a time frame that he did. Spiritually, we're incapacitated. We're spiritually dead. We start out spiritually dead. The glory of this psalm cannot be fully realized if we just read it the way it's written, without the view of Christ. But we have a divine commentary on this passage that Jesus says to his opposers. Turn with me to Hebrews 2, and there's a glorious conclusion to this picture that restores to us Psalm 8 in a way that blesses us and helps us to celebrate. Because we see this, yes, we have a dilemma, but we have our Savior Christ And our Savior is not just the Savior of me personally, but of creation. Look at Hebrews 2, starting at verse 5 through verse 11. You have what I call a divine commentary on this psalm. Do you believe, by the way, before I read it, that there are messianic psalms? That is, Psalm 22 is a psalm that Jesus actually quotes from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? But I would contest that all of the Old Testament is messianic. All the psalms are messianic. And this one may be subtly, but it is also messianic, and you'll see why. Because Jesus does us the privilege of showing us how he fulfills it. Starting at verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? You recognize, I hope. Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. He's talking about men still, right? That's the original creation. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a while, a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Yes, Psalm 8 to a degree, when you think of the original creation, should depress you for a moment. But the second Adam comes, and he lives the life that we could not live, did not live, and he restores it. And he's in the activity of restoring it now. And glorification ultimately, brothers and sisters, will be in heaven with King Jesus reigning and us properly taking care of creation. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, the creator himself, Jesus, he's the agent of creator, creation, he himself is sent by his father to do what we couldn't do to restore the relationship between God and creation. It's a beautiful picture of redemption. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. And you know the term son of man is only ever referred to by Jesus himself. He gives himself the name. God, the son, gives himself the title son of man. Now do you see what is man? And he would become man for us. And he would walk in the steps we failed to walk. He undid what Adam did. That's why Paul calls him the second Adam. And now the second Adam has obeyed God, and now we, through his righteousness, have this relationship with God, and better yet, this relationship with creation. And while we only see through the glass still dimly as it relates to what a relationship could be, there will be a day when we have a perfect balance between the earth, creation, 
in a relationship with our Father. It'll be the way he, it's paradise restored. So all the tragedy of what's lost is all the more sweeter. That is, the victory is all the sweeter when we realize what Christ has done. He's not just saved me personally, and that's very important to me. I cherish my personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. But God's effort is far bigger than just my individual salvation. It has to do with restoration of creation for his glory. So when Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday, that's King Jesus. And do you notice that he's on a donkey that has not been broken? And we have people in our church that, that actually are starting a business where they break horses for people. And that is very difficult. It takes weeks, if not months, to do it. It's even longer with a donkey. And so the reason why I think that the owner of the donkey said, no problem, take it, because he probably thought it would be funny to watch a guy try to drive away on this, this donkey that wasn't broken. But yet King Jesus takes the lowliest of all animals, who is in, stubborn of all animals, hard to break, and sits on it gently and is able to steer it through those streets. The greatest trained war horse that usually is what would carry a king is trained. It's ready to do it. And it may look glorious to man. But what Jesus did on putting himself on a donkey demonstrated the truth of Psalm 8, that he's the one who's made all this and he can subdue it. And he walks into Jerusalem and properly Hosanna rises up. And you would expect the reaction he gets from man who wants to sit on the throne, but the king has arrived. And that kingship is more than just our personal salvation. It's restoration of all creation. It's much bigger than just me, but I'm glad I'm a part. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your sovereignty.